Hello everyone, um, my name is Dr Pete Finn and I am a senior lecturer in the Department of Politics at Kingston University. Welcome to this week's episode of the COVID-19 COVID and Democracy podcast. This week we are going to be discussing events in Scotland. Um, across the UK we've got various um, different potential end dates for um, lockdowns with similar restrictions in place at the moment, but with some um, regional and national differences among those. In England, schools are at least going to be closed for it seems another month and then potentially further restrictions being eased at some point after that, but it's all quite murky at present. In Wales, um, they're in lockdown at the moment, but it seems like schools might be returning from um, the end of February for some years. In Northern Ireland, um, a similar picture, although it seems that their lockdown is, well, so their lockdown is at least to run till March the 5th, and that, though there is a review on February the 18th, so we'll see if that leads to any particular changes. In Scotland, we've got a similar picture with the lockdown, although it seems like schools which have weirdly become a barometer for lots of other things, um, a proxy for where we are in, in the process. Schools might begin to return soon, sooner than perhaps certainly in England, it seems, um, and maybe I suppose more in line with what's happening in Wales. Um, to discuss events um, in Scotland in detail, we're really lucky to have on the podcast this week, um, James Mitchell, who's a professor of public policy at Edinburgh University. Um, thanks very much for coming on the podcast, James. It's lovely to have you here. Nice to be here. Um, and was there was there anything particularly you wanted to add to kind of my summation of Scotland or before we move on to the kind of general discussion? Not really. I think you've summarised the situation across the UK really well. I think the one thing I would stress is that there are detailed differences, but they are detailed and that um, the similarities are probably greater, um, certainly as compared with other countries. I think you know, the approach that's been adopted in Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland and England have been broadly in line with one another. Um, but it is really detailed differences. And there is a bit of competition without any shadow of a doubt. Scots want to be there first to come out of lockdown first. And we're constantly being um, shown data that uh, shows that Scotland's ahead of England in some respect and comparisons with deaths and so on and so forth, which is rather, I think, an unfortunate way of going about it, but there is a bit of uh, competition there and no doubt that plays into the politics. Indeed, yeah, sure, absolutely. Okay, so before we move on to kind of delving a bit into the details of the pandemic as it's played out in Scotland and then some of the, the politics that are playing out both with relation to the pandemic, but there's kind of the, the ever-looming question of devolution and kind of independence, whatever that might or might not look like. Um, could you just introduce your work on Scotland in general? And so listeners can get yeah. a feel of where you where you've come from intellectually in that. Yeah, I mean, my, my interests kind of have spanned um, political behaviour, that's elections and referendums and parties, uh, public policy, but particularly um, the local dimension. Um, and I'm talking about the real local dimension, local communities, local government, as well as devolved government and how they all interact. Because at the end of the day, we've got a system of multi-level governance in the UK that no one level, as it were, is completely autonomous and completely 
powerful. So it's the interactions that interest me. Um, and I guess constitutional politics, which plays into that in institutional politics. And I spent a lot of my time working on devolution, the politics of independence and national identity. So it's kind of a broad area, but it's very much how all of these issues interlink. Okay, brilliant. Thank you very much. I have to get better at surmising my work in such a <laughs> succinct form. It would take about 10 minutes, but obviously, I mean, uh, yeah, that was very good. <laughs> um, so over the last year, um, you have looked at some of the effects of the pandemic at kind of that granular real local level, which is, um, and I'll post um, something that James wrote about this last year um, in the show notes so that everyone can go and go and read it. Um, it's really one of the most illuminating things I've seen in, um, on British politics over the last year, actually. So I'll, um, I'll post that for listeners in the show notes. Um, and could you just ex uh, ex explain a bit about what you found when you were looking at that kind of granular level within Scotland? I think one of the really important points that I would stress about the pandemic and indeed about public policy generally is that decisions made at the centre and whether the centre is London or Edinburgh, the decisions there, the announcements there, legislation, ministerial statements and such like, it's only the beginning, it's only the start of the process. At the end of the day, we live in communities, we live locally, and it's really how those statements, policies made at the centre filter the way down to us in our communities. And one of the things that we've seen, I think, across Scotland and across the United Kingdom is the vital importance of that local level. And it matters hugely what happens locally, how local government interacts with its communities, how the local authorities interact with health boards and other public agencies. And of course, the third sector, the voluntary organisations. And I think one of the things that we've seen over the last year is the, the vital importance and the vitality actually of what's been going on on the ground and a great diversity of approaches. And I think for me, one of the things that has come through, through very strongly from the pandemic and that we ought to recognize, celebrate and take note of as we move forward is just how dependent we are on that local level. Things that we take for granted. I mean, I often, kind of point out that, you know, throughout this pandemic, our refuse has been collected week in, week out, without fail. And we kind of take that for granted. We don't think for a moment about these guys, and it tends to be men, uh, who are kind of coming to our homes and, and removing our, our, our waste and so on. But these people have kept us uh, very healthy. Imagine if that wasn't happening. And that takes a great deal of infrastructure, a great deal of work. Um, and let's face it, we don't pay these people very well, and yet they are so vital. And that's one of the things I think we ought to have learned. And the other thing I think has been the way in which areas which maybe are often forgotten about and assumed to be backward have proved to be some of the most innovative. So for example, in Scotland, the Western Isles, the remote Western Isles, you might think, well, what could we learn from the Western Isles? Well, a lot, because the Western Isles for years now has been experimenting in distance teaching because these remote islands that make up that council have had to teach online and they've been teaching kids uh, at home um, in innovative ways using IT and it's been the model that they've been using that's been adopted across much of Scotland it's the lessons they've learned and their expertise has been vitally important and actually my view is that much that we've got to learn and we can learn as we move forward regardless of the pandemic 
will be from areas that have had to innovate, that have had to take account of challenging circumstances. And while in Scotland people think about Glasgow, Edinburgh, the central belt where most of the population lives and think, well, that's, that's the heart of the place. The true innovation in Scotland is often to be found in the peripheries. It's the peripheries, the remoter areas that I think have been vital in teaching us how to deliver public services and to ensure that the citizen is first. And I want to stress that last point, that relationship between what ministers say and what happens on the ground, there's huge distance and much can go wrong and much can go right. But ultimately, I think we, we spend far too much of our time, frankly, listening and concerned with what the first minister or prime minister has to say. And we spend far too little time considering what's going on at that local level where we live after all and where services are actually delivered. Yeah, okay, really interesting. Um, on, um, I live in a big like development, I live on the 10th floor and there's just, there's, there's loads of, um, it's near the Crossrail and HS2 site in London. And um, there's, so consequently, pretty much every day there are refuse trucks come and collect either from private residences or there's a bunch of businesses on the site as well. Um, and it, you're right, it has continued throughout the pandemic um, and there's and and not just to the extent it gets collected there's like variant gradients in it so there's like the recycling truck that yep. comes one day and then there's the, the I don't claim to be an expert on it, but that, I mean that is very true even in like April March um, when basically everything else shut down um, that that continued um, that's really interesting insight and what you said about um, schools how how interesting that um, uh, because of their geography, the Westerners had to um, learn those lessons, and then they've been adopted um, adopted elsewhere. Brilliant! Wow, how 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 interesting indeed. Um, uh, so I suppose we've touched on this a little bit, um, but then so if you had to surmise some takeaways that maybe elected officials, whether they be at kind of local council level or all the way up to kind of the executive, whether that's um, the the centre, whether, as you say, whether the centre is Edinburgh. Um, and I presume if you're in the Western Isles, Edinburgh must seem almost as far away as London. Yeah, <laughs> um, absolutely. Or, so whether you're the centre as in Edinburgh or the centre as in London, um, what are some kind of lessons that you, you think they could learn from these? I, I often think that um, not just politicians, but officials at the centre should spend more time out of the office. And in fact, I would, I would encourage them to have secondments in, in local communities to understand what their policies mean, where it counts, and that's in our community. And so in a sense, what we need to do is turn our policy making upside down and start to look at it from, from the citizen's point of view. And far too much policy making takes place um, really far away from where it counts. And, and that I think is, is hugely important. The other thing I think that's vitally important, again, another lesson that we should have learned by now, and the pandemic has, has, has brought to our notice, hopefully, are the kind of, of the complexities, the different institutions and organizations, the agencies that are involved. There, there's a complex network of organizations. And sometimes that network doesn't actually operate as a network, it's, it, it's siloed. I mean, and what we do need to get is, is a better sense of how we can all interconnect. And that's particularly true, I think, of what we call wicked problems, the really deep entrenched Demic problems that we have in our society around poverty, for example, where you know individual families or individuals are having to engage with a multiple multiple organisations and institutions, all of whom 
often doing a good enough job, but frankly, they're not, they're not connected. One even sees that within institutions. So for example, the health service, um, the lack of coordination within the health service is, is, is a major problem. And so we need to kind of, I think, see things, not from the point of view of institutional structures, but view it from the citizen's point of view. How does she see and experience public services? And could we make it better? Um, I think that's one of the big, big lessons that we need to learn. So it's not just about the relationship between, say, UK government, Scottish government, local government. It's also the, if you like, the, the horizontal relationships at the local level. How does that work? I mean, I'm often told by councillors in Scotland that they receive um, communications, complaints, and so on from, from constituents about a whole range of issues. And one of the areas that they often hear people complain about is a local health service, the local GP service. And why is that? Because public don't know who else to go to because there is no elected official at local level. And that would suggest to me that there's a problem that needs to be resolved. The truth of the matter is the local council has no remit formally in that area. You know, people want to go to someone, so we need sure. to stop. I mean, we have things general... like there's models there, right? Like police commissioners, for example. It's a relatively recent innovation, um, and still under appreciated, I suppose. But it's a newish office. But you could have a uh, health commission, elected health commissioner. For... I would be, I would be reluctant to go down that route because I think that also silos it. It sticks it out on, on its own. Of course, we don't have police commissioners in Scotland. We've got sure. police. Scotland, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, but nonetheless, with with the police, um, they operate at local level, and where it works really well, and it does work really well in many places, is the way in which the the local officers will engage with other public servants, and so we get that kind of that kind of joined up approach to it. I, I'm always concerned when I hear recommendations for new policies that will set up a new commissioner or a new institution for a specific purpose. How do we make sure that the, that, that institution or individual links up with others? That's not easy because at the end of the day, you know, we don't want to have people spending all their time in meetings and so on and so forth. So there's a fine balance to be struck. But at the moment, I don't think we're striking it very well. I don't think there's enough integration, there's not enough collaboration across services. And that's that frustrates the citizen. The citizen doesn't understand that. We don't understand what, why, why we have to get pushed from pillar to post, um, even as I say, within one service, such as the health service. Why is it that, you know, it takes so long um, for the pieces to, to, to join up? I recently just had a, a, an x-ray and it took, you know, ages for that to get back to my GP. That should have happened instantly. I mean, in yeah, technology, a file, no right? excuse. Email. <laughs> absolutely no excuse for that. But that's the kind of thing that, you know, A, use technology, but make sure we've got more efficient services. And, and I don't think, I think we're still stuck with institutional structures created very successfully for the bygone era and we haven't really entered the 21st century. And I think the pandemic has, it's not that this is all new, the pandemic has highlighted many of these weaknesses and problems. Okay, brilliant. Um, back um, in the piece that I was referring to earlier, um, when discussing Scotland and um, kind of the, the granular level, you said you wrote of a penury of devolution in Scotland, which I think is a really great phrase. I just wondered if you could expand a bit for listeners and what yeah. you meant by that and whether it still does it still hold that yeah 
I, I think I would distinguish if we're going to devolve, and I'm all in favour of devolving to local communities and to local government, um, and indeed to Edinburgh, but keep on keeping it coming down into communities. We want to devolve power. And by that, I mean, not comp just competencies and responsibilities. We've got to be able to do something. So in our local communities, instead of saying, right, you're going to be responsible now for, say, education or whatever else, people have got to be empowered to be able to do something. At the moment, I think we get this devolution of penury, as I would call it, where you're saying, we're dumping the problem on you. You've got this responsibility, get on with it, but we're not going to give you the power, in a sense, we're not going to give you the resources to do anything about it. And I think across the whole of the UK, that's what we've seen over many, many years. The central governments have said to local governments, as this is true in England as it is in Scotland, um, right, you are responsible for X, Y, and Z. You've got to deliver this, but we're going to cut your grant. But you've still <laughs> got to deliver it. That's the devolution penury. That's saying, right, we're dumping the problem on you, the responsibility, but without the power that needs to go with it to be able to do something. And I think sometimes we confuse and conflate responsibility and power. And so it's certainly the case that local authorities have a great deal of responsibility. I don't think they've got the power and they certainly don't have the financial power, the fiscal powers that they require. And that includes grants. I mean, across Britain, what we are seeing is uh, we've seen cuts in public expenditure, but local authorities are really suffering more, more than others. Um, but it's not that they're having any of their uh, responsibilities or competencies taken away from them. They're still expected to, do, to deliver. And of course, what happens then, as we're seeing, is that some of the, the responsibilities which in law they must deliver, such as schooling and such like, are protected as best as possible. But other matters, which are vitally important, including around culture, lesson recreation, which I think are vitally important, and I'll say why in a moment, um, are cut because they, you know, they're not statutorily obliged to deliver these. But why do I think culture and leisure and recreation are important? Because actually these are health matters. If you want to have a quality health, a healthy population, you need to have swimming pools, sports facilities, and we need to encourage people to use them. It will help their physical health and it helps their mental health. And I think as we're coming out of this pandemic, what we're going to see is that a major legacy in terms of health a major problem in terms of health, both in terms of physical, but particularly mental health. A lot of the problems that have been building up in our communities amongst our citizens are going to become more and more evident as we come out of this. So the pressure, I think, on our mental health services will be intense. So we've got to find ways of, of getting out of this. And I do warn governments that, you know, there may come a day when we can say everybody's back at school, everybody's back at work, and we've, we've moved on. We will not have moved on. There's going to be a massive legacy, a public health legacy in particular, that will need to be addressed. And it's going to cost us money and it's going to cost us time. So that, I think, is one of the things that I worry about as we move forward. And, and formally, when we move out of this pandemic, we're still going to have that, this, this rather worrying legacy. Yeah, and you would imagine it's going to, I mean, you're probably in terms of I mean, especially, I suppose, around mental health. I mean, you're probably talking decades of yeah. uh, people needing support to get... I mean, even if you just... What came to mind when you were talking was just the people who are literally on the front line, whether that's kind of a porter in a hospital or a doctor or someone who's... Uh, you know, you can imagine people working in, like, funeral uh, <laughs> businesses and stuff. That There's going to be kind of ripples that are going to go on for decades and... 
you can't predict what all we can't predict what all they will be but Absolutely. they're going to take time to play out at an individual and then kind of feeding up to the structural level um I, absolutely i think i think a lot of people are working on the front line and have been for months often working very long hours under intense pressure at the moment during this crisis they're just keeping on going because they've got to keep on going and actually the point at which the the, the, the problem may really start to arise is when they when they go back to so-called normal that's when people are going to it's going to hit people and i think you're absolutely right i mean in fairness um i mean i i shared and facilitated some meetings with local authority chief executives and leaders over the last few months and there is awareness of it at that level and a concern at that level and certainly up here efforts to kind of prepare for for that as best they can but bear in mind the resources are are just not there so that's going to be a major problem and challenge and i think government at the center i worry that because they are so distant relative to um, many of the services on the ground so distant and they're going to be saying oh thank goodness it's all over they may be less aware of what's actually going on okay. and the problems there and, and that, yeah. that that concerns me greatly and you can see i mean you can almost see yeah like a return to high politics the tories are going to be focused on the re-election re in 2024 um yeah. the snp i suppose in scotland will be focused on will return their kind of laser focus to some kind of further devolution or independence or whatever in <laughs> arrangements come out um, in the future without necessarily and it uh, also occurs to me the bigger the majority it, whether that's the Tories in London or the SNP um, in Holyrood or, or wherever like <laughs> in Wales or the, the bigger the majority the less focus there or the less time they can potentially put into that because there's less pressure on them to yeah. deliver yeah. Yeah. yeah and of course up here we've got elections coming up in may to the scottish parliament and obviously the local elections elsewhere but we've we've got that and that's kind of this battle already started on that while this pandemic is going on um and and, and i think you're right i mean uh, i mean i think having said that i think individual members members of parliament members of the scottish parliament senate and wales and so on i think have a very important role because they are actually in touch with the communities for the most part. I mean, I think we shouldn't overstate the, the degree of centralization. Um, there are, you know, those linkages which are vitally important and it's their job to articulate that. The problem of course, is that in the context of an election, party loyalty kicks in. And, you know, if you may have a problem locally and your party's in government or you, you know, you might be less but more reluctant to kind of raise this as an issue. Um, and I do think one of the things we've got in our politics, this is true across Britain, is we've lost that kind of often that independence in mind of the of the backbencher. And certainly that's true in the Scottish Parliament. I mean, you know, it's 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 hyper partisan, hyper partisan. Um, and and we, we don't have the kind of independent minded still loyal party uh, member that we maybe could do with. I mean, you do have that. I think you've got that to a far greater extent, at least in the House of Commons. There are MPs um, in, in, in both major parties that are pretty independent mind who give trouble to their leaders. Um, and I think, we, you know, that, that, that I can understand why it's a problem for leaders, but I do think that's a healthy thing, particularly if they're raising issues that otherwise wouldn't be raised from the communities or, or beyond. Yeah, absolutely. As a citizen, you want yeah, absolutely you want your MP to be uh, raising stuff regardless of who, who's in power. Absolutely. Um, and actually, in fairness, just reflecting a bit 
maybe I did take the critique too far because actually when one of the few issues that there is or like so everyone agrees that the vaccine rollout's going relatively well at least um like overall there's definitely where people can point to blockages here and there but in general it seems mm -hmm. to be going quite well um but one of the other few issues that there is general agreement on and no, no one uh does anything to push back against it really anymore is when someone from any party stands up in like locally or nationally and says uh mental health is as important as physical health um and we need to think about that as a long-term issue and and the effects of the lockdown on people's mental health that that's like it's all it's just an accepted now which is yeah that's a relatively recent thing i yeah. think in british politics to have yeah. to have that which is i suppose so maybe i did take the yeah the critique slightly too far no i don't think you did I, 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 I don't i do i do think that point you just made about the way in which mental health has become a more um um it's more acceptable to talk about it i mean and i think i think governments have probably played a limited part in this i think there are certain individuals um often public figures celebrities included who have been very public in in terms of having to deal with some of these challenges and that has allowed many other people to come forward and and in a sense issues that you know have been if they like hidden or not spoken about are now much more publicly aware up here we've had some quite significant senior politicians in Scotland who've, who've very publicly explained some of the challenges they've had with mental health. And that's been a really, I think it's been a very positive move. I think that's helped. Um, and, 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 you know, so that kind of hidden problem is, is now being we're more aware of it. Um, so, so I think there is the, that has been a, a tremendous change over a short period of time. And, it, and I think that predated the, the, the pandemic. So, and it will make it easier, I think, to make some of these points in that particular, in that particular area, at least, policy. Okay, brilliant. Um, so turning our attention slightly, um, something else that James has written recently is a pamphlet um, on the, so it's, the focus is Scotland, but actually I think the lessons and the discussions um, have a, an importance to to everyone across the UK, I would say, because the discussions are about it's it's focused on Scotland, but about obviously if there's changes to the arrangement with relation to Scotland, that affects us all. Um, and I so and I'll also post the information about that in the um, show notes. Um, and in your work on that, you argue that the UK has currently reached the limits of the constitutional plumbing that. Um, I guess that's kind of came out of the devolution settlements of almost two decades ago now. I wonder, could you explain a bit about what you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that we've tried to do over the years is, if, as it were, kind of plumb our constitution. In other words, where, where we've seen a leak, we've tried to, to sort that leak and we've kind of, you know, you know, we need plumbers. We need plumbers, don't get me wrong, but um, and we need constitutional plumbers to fix bits of the of the institutional machinery. Um, but I think we've got to the point where, you know, adding bits on and dealing with individual problems is over. We've gone as far as we can there. What we need, if you like, to push this uh, um, metaphor further is, 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 a, is a new architecture of the UK constitution. So we need architects, not plumbers. Um, and I think we need to look at the whole UK and to consider just how, how it operates, where we, where we need reform. So instead of looking at, say, Scotland or Wales or English regions and saying we could 
um, extend devolution, give more powers here or there, or redraw boundaries in England or whatever else. I think we need to look at the whole of the UK and, and look at how it operates. And it kind, of, it kind of fits with some of the points I was making earlier about public policy is, is we need more joined up thinking. And I would argue, I've got a blog coming out this weekend, um, which argues that, you know, what we've been doing is focusing on devolving, which is good, and I want to see more of that. But we're, we're not focusing on the real problem. And, and why, are, why is there a grievance in Scotland and Wales and in some of the northern regions in England? It's because there's a sense that London ignores us or disdains us, is contemptuous sometimes. And some of the things that the Prime Minister has said, you know, just fuels that sense of alienation. So maybe the, the place to start is London and the centre. And at the moment, the perception in Scotland and Wales, and I was speaking to a group uh, who are arguing for radical federalism in Wales just last evening. Um, the argument there is that, you know, we need to make sure there is a strong voice for the regions, places like Scotland and Wales, so the regions and nations that make up the UK in London. Um, and, and one of the arguments I put forward, and it's, it's an old argument, but I think uh, it, it, it's time has come in my view, uh, is that we we look at the second chamber and we've got this absurd second chamber, a House of Lords at the moment, uh, for a 21st century democracy. It's, it's an obscenity more than just absurd. And it could become a, a House of Nations and Regions. And it would be empowered, in my view, to veto any, any proposals coming from the Commons to roll back devolution or to undermine the devolved bodies. And, and in a sense, ensure that there is a voice at the centre, regardless of which party is in power. Um, and there's, you know, there's no doubt at all that the reason we're getting this grievance expressed very strongly again in Scotland, Wales and Northern Regions is because of that perception that the current government, the current prime minister just doesn't listen. Um, and I think many people in Scotland would accept that they have a party that they didn't vote for in power if they felt that at least their voice was heard. So I think we need to look at the whole of the UK. And I would go further than that. I think it's not something that should be restricted to the, to the second chamber. And I think we should look at other institutions, the Bank of England, um, the regional voice ought to be there very clearly and consistently. Um, and so we kind of get a power shift. Now, I have to say, this is not an attack on London because those voices from the regions, I think are voices that are not heard uh, not only are our voices not heard, but actually some of the some of London's voices aren't heard. And so there are parts of London, frankly, that would benefit from having those other voices in the North England because they have much more in common in many respects. So it's not just a geographical it's a, a, a issue. It's maybe made manifest geographically, but a, there are other dimensions to it as well. So I, I think that's what I've argued is that we need to kind of look at the whole of the UK, a new architecture for the UK. Um, unlike the Blair reforms, constitutional reforms, which were, you know, siloed, looked at Wales, looked at Scotland, looked at Northern Ireland, played about with the House of Lords. Let's look at the relationship with it, between them all and do a proper overhaul of the constitution. Now, I have to say, I can make a rational case for it. Politically, will it happen? Probably less than 50 percent chance, <laughs> but we need to get that people talking about it at the very least. Yeah, indeed. Um, I mean, it was interesting. I was thinking when you were talking about the, you mentioned the Bank of England. You know, even when you think back to just before the the last independence referendum in Scotland, right, when Alex Salmond was the leader, it wasn't 
like what Alex Salmon was proposing wasn't like a complete rip from the United Kingdom, right? Like, for instance, there was this whole debate um, about whether or not Scotland should be able to keep the pound, right? Um, With Salmon basically saying, if I recall correctly, so correct me if I'm wrong, oh, no, it's our pound as much as it's theirs, so we should be able to keep it. So if you're going to be in a custom, like, or share the currency, then that's not a that's not complete independence, right? And so yeah, yeah. even those on the, at least associated with the biggest kind of break yeah. publicly, and I get, this might relate to my kind of yeah. London-centric view of things, at least, um, are that it's not a complete, you know, separate country. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. I mean, one of the problems I think that the current debate is it's conducted in really outmoded language and we talk about nationalism and we talk about separation and we talk about independence when really what we're talking about are relationships within these islands and and if Scotland was to vote for independence or had done so in 2014 or was to do so in any future referendum it won't affect our geography we'll still have England as our neighbour whether we like it or not and we will still have to trade with England because England is our biggest trading partner And we're going to have to have some kind of institutional arrangements, some kind of collaboration across a range of matters. And that may change over time. And so I think if we start to conceive of the debate as about a series of relationships rather than this kind of simplistic binary notion of union versus independence, we'll maybe move forward in a much more constructive and and friendlier way, actually. The debate up here can get pretty um, unfriendly, let's say, certainly very binary, very adversarial. Um, But, you know, I think there are many people who might be inclined to vote for independence, whose views are not that terribly dissimilar from many people who would vote for for union. Basically, they want something that kind of lies between the two, and ultimately, that there's constant renegotiation. You know, it's 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 about a renegotiation, and and the changing context will determine exactly the extent to which we should share certain services. Now, there are people, for example, in the SNP who've long argued this. The former Justice Secretary, who's now happens to be my Member of Parliament here in East Lothian, <laughs> Ken McCaskill, I mean, back in 2004, he argued that there was absolutely no reason why um, an independent Scotland could not share a, a, a series of institutions with the rest of the UK. I mean, he he gave some examples back then of, of matters that really ought to be non-controversial. So um, the DVLA, does Scotland need a separate DVLA, he argued? Does Scotland need a separate ordnance survey? Now, he chose those issues because at that time it was a pretty bold thing to say, but actually we could go much further than that and ask, well, could we not share a lot more? Even And that's to kind of bring people over from the independence side. And then on the other side, there are many people who are arguing for a kind of radical federalism, who are arguing for for, for um, essentially giving Scotland, or indeed Wales, much more autonomy in certain areas. But again, what we've been not so good at doing is working about what we could share and how we'd share it, what would be the institutions. And that's where I think a reformed House of Lords plays a part. Um, a story I often tell is that many years ago, I was invited to a conference in Berlin and it was taking place in the Bundesrat, which is the German upper chamber. I was actually in the chamber of the Bundesrat and I was talking at the time, probably not quite 20 years ago, about devolution and the constitutional reform programme of the Blair government and House Lords reform, and explaining what was being proposed in each of these different reforms. And someone in the chamber said, why don't you do what you know we've done? And, and in this chamber, we do. In this chamber, we represent 
the 16 land governments, so the lender are represented. We've got devolved government, as it were, the federal system, but we also ensure that that voice is heard in the upper chamber. That's how we would see the second chamber. And I said to him in response, but that's too sensible for us. You know, <laughs> that's where yeah. we should be. That's not how we've done it. So I think it's that kind of more joined up constitutional thinking, that kind of new architecture, instead of kind of plumbing it bits and pieces, trying to fill in gaps, addressing weaknesses in the system, there comes a point when we need to actually say, hold on, time is right to do, to do an overhaul. As I say, I mean, I, 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 the prospect of this happening, uh, how it should happen, I think that's another matter. I think if it's going to happen, it will probably be done in an incremental way. I don't think there's going to be a big bang we'll have a new constitution. But we need to start thinking in that way, I think, in order to reform the UK. And it's not about Scotland. It's not just about saying, how do we keep Scotland in If we go about it that way, it will fail. We've also got to think, well, what is it that the, these regions in the North England, people like Andy Burnham, who clearly got a view as to how his part of England should be governed. How do we incorporate them and ensure that their voice is not marginalised, excluded, ignored, demeaned, as many people in North England feel the Northern English voice is? Yeah, it's interesting. Andy Burnham, like, so when he was, so he, I mean, he didn't reach the level of kind of derision that Nicola Sturgeon sometimes gets piled upon her in the English press, but um, he, became in kind of London-centric press a, a, a strange figure for a while because he's been a national figure for a long time, right? Was involved in yep. the, the Blair Brown years, right? In various different ways. And then he was arguing, I mean, I mean, he was doing his job, right? Arguing for his region, but it was it like the, a lot of the things he was saying about kind of focusing on business and stuff. It was almost like a Tory Tory lines, but I mean, this isn't a critique of what he was saying at all, but the, the things that he was arguing for were kind of because the government was saying one thing, which is almost, I mean, like the, the to I guess give credit to the Conservative government, they found money that no one yeah. ever knew, could even imagine would have been spent a year ago. Um, and so Andy, Bur but Andy Burnham was having to uh, take a slightly different line, um, yeah. which reflects some of, the, I guess, that those regional tensions. Um, Okay, so just before we wrap up, was there any, is there any other ways that we haven't touched upon already in which you think COVID-19, and I suppose, I mean, it might be fading a bit now, but maybe Brexit has played into these oh, discussions. Um, no, two small questions, obviously, there uh, to finish on. Um, yeah, it's funny, we've not managed to mention Brexit up until now, because Brexit <laughs> is such an, a big issue. I mean, in Scotland, obviously, it's a huge issue. Um, and it's certainly the fact that 62% of Scots voted to remain and the proportion has grown since then, they went back in the European Union. It kind of symbolises the sense in Scotland that we're different and that we want a different future from the rest of the UK. And that's fueling the demand for independence. And, you know, I, I've often argued that in a sense, um, well, Mrs Thatcher and the poll tax explain why we have a parliament in the first place in Scotland. Boris Johnson and Brexit uh, explain the, the rising support for independence. And, and there's no doubt at all, Brexit is, is on the one hand, highlighting um, difference and divergence, fueling the demand for independence, but then it also creates an enormous problem for the SNP. Because, I mean, though the SNP wants independence in Europe, and 
all the signs from the European Union is that Scotland would be admitted. I don't think there's any doubt at all about that. Um, I, I, I was pretty sure it would happen even if they'd voted for it in 2014, but it's certain now. But that still leaves a major problem, and that is a relationship with the rest of the UK. Um, you know, about an hour from where I live is uh, at the border with England. Um, at the moment, I can just drive over the border. I mean, there's a kind of flags there and all the rest of it and signposts, but there's nothing else. There's no border guards. There's, you know, I'm free movement. I have free movement. If Scotland's in the European Union and the rest of the UK is out, that border becomes meaningful. That border becomes a problem. It, I won't have the same free movement. Now, it will depend on all sorts of... Yeah, and there's no Irish Sea, right? Like Northern no, Ireland's been... There's almost... But we create the same problem. Yeah, 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 problem. exactly. But there's no uh, natural... Yeah, yeah. So, so, so there is a, a, you know, Brexit is as much a headache to advocates of independence as it is to the union. So on the one hand, it's fuel demand because of that sense of difference and divergence, but it also creates a major problem. And why we might want to trade more and more with the rest of Europe, our major trading partner will almost certainly, always certainly into the future, be, be with the rest of the UK. So there's a headache there. Um, Brexit, Brexit, I mean, what, what happens with Brexit, the ramifications, the, what is clear is that many of the things that were promised are not happening. The fishing industry, obviously, is more significant in Scotland, but even in Scotland, it's not a major industry, but symbolically has importance. And I think what we'll probably see in May is that many of these communities that had voted for Brexit and then went on to vote for the Tories, I think they may be disinclined to vote for the Tories. So the Tories are looking... Uh, they're going to be in trouble come May, I think, in Scotland. Um, so Brexit, yeah, it took us a long time to get to talk about Brexit. Yeah, sure. No doubt, it's vitally important. That's that's my fault. I should have raised it earlier. No, no, um, that's fine. It's, 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 a, it's a huge issue. Yeah. Okay. All right then. Um, so just before we wrap up, is there anything else that you'd like? Any? No, I, I think we've covered a lot. I'm sure afterwards we'll both think of things we should. Absolutely, say. absolutely. The uh, yeah. The, 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 yeah, you don't get the peer review on an interview to. Uh, <laughs> that's right. That's, yeah. <laughs> Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much. And I'll, thank uh, you. So lovely to have you on the show. Thanks, James. No problem. Take